Welcome to the Dirtbag State of Mind podcast from the Climbing Zine. I am Luke Mihal, and this is episode 20 of season two, a conversation with Peter Horgan. Peter actually is doing the interviewing in this one for his podcast, The Climbing Advocate, and we're resharing that here. Um, Peter creates that podcast in conjunction with the Access Fund, and it really focuses on advocacy, and we have a wide-ranging conversation here. Um, from advocacy to writing and um, a whole bunch of climbing in between. And I haven't really thought of myself as much of an advocate or an activist um, until the last couple years, uh, specifically with Bears Ears National Monument and then having started a climbers coalition here in Durango, the Durango Climbers Coalition. Really grateful for Peter for meeting up with me in the creek and we sat down and our friend Mike's camper RV thing and that was super fun and and always a pleasure to hang out with Peter and um, yeah hope you all enjoy this conversation be sure to check out the show notes and um, follow Peter's podcast and in that in those show notes there's also a link um, to get 15% off anything in our online store and as I always say in this intro and in the intro to all the zines, that's the best way to support the zine and this podcast. Hey everyone, Tommy Caldwell here. You know, everyone, at least in the climbing world these days, is trying to figure out ways to live more intentionally, to live a less impactful life. And one of the best things we as climbers can do to make that happen is to support and buy things from the companies that are doing the same thing, the companies that are figuring out ways to lower their carbon footprint, lower their chemical usage, make their products out of recycled materials, make products that just don't wear out. And, you know, the only company that's doing that well in the ropes and hardware space is Edelrid. They've been innovating the best products for over 100 years. They invented the sit harness. These days they make unquestionably the most high quality ropes, the lightest weight carabiners. And really, they're just awesome all around. So check them out at www.climbgreen.com. Hey, this is Chad Rich. I'm the editor and producer of this podcast. We can't bring you this audio art without your support and support from our sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Scarpa. Scarpa's approach to climbing shoe design mirrors their approach to the pursuit of climbing itself. They strive to evolve and incorporate new ideas and techniques every step of the way. They refine their strengths, train their weaknesses, and build on each success. Scarpa has been bolstering its climbing shoe foundations by continuing to create versatile, high-quality designs that satisfy the needs of climbers across a range of disciplines and skill levels. For more information, visit scarpa.com. Now let's get into the episode. Well, the, the first time I heard of you was when you got hurt in the Black Canyon. Yes. And Haley, uh, our good friend Haley Tamburini, was asking everyone to take a piece off their rack because mm -hmm. you lost a lot of your rack. Mm -hmm. And it was this, so that was the first time I knew about you. You were like, yeah, this, this dude Peter's super cool. And yeah. <laughs> we're, we're, we're trying to get some cams and um, for him. And that was how I first heard about you and then yeah obviously since we're both both in this business in one way or another and passionate climbers and, and both have that Gunnison Valley connection too we've had a lot of intersection with um, our lives yeah mm -hmm. 
Yeah. Um, I know. I was actually uh, thinking about that accident the other day and how Haley and Adam rallied to get gear together for me, and, and Adam got a bunch of gear back from that from the canyon from right a, a party climbed the route brought the gear back to the ranger station he's yeah. like put two and two together and he's like oh my <laughs> i know who this belongs to right it was amazing like literally tears came to my eyes that i, I that dance can house. only imagine yeah, yeah yeah um and then the first i think i first heard your name from the crestview magazine really first, wow first summer or first, first summer or winter i was in crested butte i was flipping through crested magazine i don't remember what the article was but there was a picture of I don't know either you or someone else sitting on a ledge. I think it was Port Ledge. Might have been a natural ledge. I don't know where it was. But I was like, whoa, rock climbing, Crested Butte. Like, oh my god. Like, I was a little worried when I moved to Crested Butte from Fort Collins that there wasn't a lot of climbing there. Right. And, but you know, it proved me wrong pretty quickly. But I, you know, I came across your name, and then I found your first book, Climbing Out of Bed. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh my god. There's like <laughs> stories about climbing. It was like, and then kind of just blew the lid off for me and yeah oh that's out. great yeah and then yeah. i was like oh my god he's from gunnison like this is amazing yeah <laughs> uh what year was that book what year did you write that, that book, book i released in i think 2012 okay yeah all right yeah. so you're or, a little over 10 years ago. yeah just about 10 years ago yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. awesome well i you know i've gone to so many of your talks and presentations when you come to crest butte and gunnison and yeah heard heard your heard your backstory a number of times and your mm-hmm. inspirations and we have I feel like I followed a similar path in a way. Like we're both like we're both you know very pretty hardcore deadheads or mm-hmm. love love the Grateful Dead. Yeah. So you know, um, post post Jerry Garcia post deadheads. Jerry, yeah, I think I was seven or eight when he died. Yeah, so. I was. Uh, I had started listening to Jerry Garcia the week he died. Yeah. Crazy. Um, and when he died, I was like, "Who's Jerry Garcia?" That's right. how little I knew about the Grateful Dead, <laughs> but I knew I liked the Grateful Dead. I, totally. I was probably sixteen. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so or I mean, fifteen. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, before my time, but caught up well after, and you know, took a very strong liking to that band and the whole scene. And you know, we'd see a lot of live music back in the day, and you know, you've seen a lot of widespread panic as, as yeah. I have too. Uh-huh. <laughs> so yeah, we're both from Illinois. You know, different towns, but um, you know, the Midwestern roots, uh, live music, and all that kind of. And then like found this transition to the West and found rock climbing. So you know, I've heard your story a lot, but could you talk a little about, about those early inspirations, you know, Bob Dylan, the Grateful Dead, um, that kind of thing? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess lyrically, the, you know, writing-wise, um, Bob Dylan and, and the Grateful Dead and then later hip-hop artists um, really formed my, like, sense of, of a love for words, really. Um, but, you know, the the intersection we're talking about the dead dirt bag this uh this artist mike hanslick who i just came across who just made that dirt bag is dead shirt for us like there's so much intersection between the hippie lifestyle and the dirt bag lifestyle but for me the hippie lifestyle would have ended very badly i think (laughs) i think i you know perhaps would have gone down the wrong road without with just the hippie lifestyle you know um because i'm a person that needs like exercise in the outdoors and I heavily need that stuff. And I think it was probably a blessing that not a blessing that Jerry Garcia died when he did, but like the fact that the Grateful Dead didn't exist because I think I could have got too into that scene. And if I was going to every show for 60 shows a year, I would have ended up (laughs) dead or in jail. (laughs) So, you know, climbing in a way saved my life, even though climbing is always trying to kill us. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I joke that, you know, like my story, you know, my story, I think at this point is pretty widely known, but for anyone that doesn't know, I was severely depressed in like my 1920 uh, age frame, which 
Um, now that I've lived a lot of life, I realize that that's quite commonplace that these things happen to people. I thought it it was only happening to me. Um, but in that sense, that's how I ended up in Gunnison, um, in 1999 is that I was severely depressed, suicidal, kind of took off on the road and was on fish tour and widespread and was like trying to find this girl and, um, just ended up, um, looking at a map. I was kind of, I was on the road for about a month and had lost contact with everyone and then reconnected with my family. And I was like, you know, I need to get back. I need to go to school. And my parents were supportive of that. You know, my, my mom's an educator and, um, she, uh, my parents were like, all right, find a school to go to. And so I, you know, it was a little bit on the internet, but mostly like looking at roadmaps. Mm-hmm. And I was driving around close to Gunnison. And I saw Gunnison was just surrounded by all this green on the map. Yep. And that's literally why I moved to Gunnison is I was just out, in my car in the West and I saw there was a liberal arts college and I was like, Ooh, could I get into a liberal arts college? You know? And if any knew anyone knows anything about the Gunnison Valley back in the day, it was, it's just barely, they were trying to make it work. I mean, like, I think Crested Butte is too much, has had too much of a good thing in terms of being on the map now and everything. But in the late nineties, early two thousands, it was a struggling ski resort that was constantly going bankrupt no, totally. in a college that would basically take anyone who <laughs> had a C average. And I had been to two colleges um, so th- I guess that's kind of kind of a long answer of what my story is and, and how I ended up in Gunnison and, and involving the Grateful Dead and mm-hmm. um, but you know about Bob Dylan because you did ask and, and and Bob Dylan is like my favorite singer songwriter I feel like he's such an inspiration with um, storytelling and the use of words and you know conveying of emotions i mean i feel like there's you know certain times a year you can just listen to bob dylan it's like wow this this was written in the fall or this was written in the winter mm-hmm. um or whatever and um still yeah kind of the insp- i still like i never get sick of bob dylan or the grateful dead yeah um it's how crazy about, how about neil yeah. young yeah, Neil Young's he's a he's an autumn artist. <laughs> I feel like. Well, you I know? was just thinking of Harvest Moon in the top. Yeah. Of my head. I was oh like, my god. That feels like fall to me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and no, yeah, Neil Young's great, but not in my category of of Dylan. Yeah. But yeah. It, he he's a seasoned type of artist, and, and Dylan is in some ways too. But yeah, some reason I just never the Dead and Dylan. I could just listen to those two forever. And I mean, never get sick of them. I mean, they went. They yeah. played together a lot, and you know, yeah. they went together. They went together like peas and carrots, you know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Um, you mentioned that you saw a lot of green on the map when you went to Gunnison. Did you know the, what that green was? Yeah. Those were like public lands? Yeah. So I had started climbing in southern Illinois. Okay. And my first climbing trip was with like half the people were heroin addicts. Oh, God. <laughs> so my, my hippie buddy uh, from high school had these friends from the suburbs of Chicago, mm-hmm. and they were all um, addicted to heroin. And it was really weird. First climbing trip. And I, I wow. didn't even really like climbing that much. Um, but I had a climbing gym in my hometown. I didn't, the outdoor experience didn't, I was just like, okay, whatever. I was more into the beer and the weed. And, um, once I got it, I got into indoor climbing in my hometown because my hometown in Bloomington Normal had the largest climbing gym in the world in like 92 <laughs> or, or 95 or whatever, or as built as that, you know, and a lot, a lot of square foot, uh, in these grain silos. And so I kind of fell in love with climbing in the gym. Mm-hmm. And then, so I didn't like outdoor climbing fell in love with climbing in the gym in Illinois and then moved to Gunnison. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was aware that like national forest was, was green on the map and, and that, that was a good thing for, for what I liked and mm-hmm. it ended up being, I guess a good decision. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Were you, were you, uh, were you writing before you found the Grateful Dead and Bob Dylan? Not really. I was re- writing like sad journal entries of a depressed person, you know? <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so where did, where did that uh, where did the writing start? I mean, you came to Gunnison and started writing. I know you worked for the university or I guess college there first. Was that right? Uh, no, I I went to school there first and then I worked there. Okay, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. okay, yeah. And that's that was like the springboard for your writing career. Yeah, it was poetry. Mm-hmm. Um, it was having professors that you know at a liberal arts college like Gunnison there's a pedestal of of certain writers and especially environmental like writers and stuff so it was like put have something of value where all my other education in illinois there was no writer that in academia especially that was put up on a pedestal um i was in a jack kerouac he's kind of the other the other missing link um yeah yeah in there but in academic in you know my english classes in college in illinois the two colleges i went to there universities there was no like this is a hero. So once you have like, um, you know, an Edward Abbey um, or someone like that held up as like a hero in a classroom and then I I wrote poetry and then right when I started writing poetry, uh, George Sibley, my writing mentor was like, this, this is good enough to publish. So he published some of my first poems and these were like poems that I write like by a campfire on a napkin or right at the fire brand. Yeah. um, Yeah. Yep. The restaurant in Gunnison on a napkin. Yeah. And what were the, what was the what were these poems about? Um, Hartman's, the Black Canyon, um, climbing Devil's Tower. Okay. Um, just 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 like the emotions that moved me in those moments, and um, that that's so it all started with poetry, and then moved into kind of like editorials. So I think the Iraq War and nine eleven are, are very mm. central to my writing in my life because that all happened when I was, you know, twenty one in college living out of a tent too so i was already disillusioned with society and then the iraq war happened which just made me completely disillusioned with society and and just wanted to be as far away from it but i would write my little i wouldn't go to marches or anything but i'd write my because we were living in gunnison so rural and you know half the time i didn't even have a running car so i didn't i didn't like go to any marches or anything but i was always writing editorials about how i felt and honestly it was kind of cool though because i would gunnison's the kind of town where you can like at least then it was like you could disagree with someone, but then you'd see them on the street corner, so you'd have to talk to them. So I remember yep. me and this military vet would go back and forth with editorials, and we actually had like a pretty good um, – he was kind of writing out the other side, I think, of defending you – know, I can't remember exactly if he was defending Afghanistan or F Iraq, but we would kind of go back and forth and have respectful back and forth in the in the paper, that. which yeah. yeah, which is Gunnison, I think, is – hopefully that still goes on. I, I know that our world is so different now, but – respectful back and forth with people you disagree with i'm now realizing that was a big part of my um my writing in the beginning too Mm -hmm. so that's kind of how it started and then the essays came along a little bit later yeah um, after poetry and and editorial writing Mm -hmm. and and a little bit of you know small town community journalism i think community journalism is really big in in gunnison Mm -hmm. yeah oh it totally is um so those early poems were climbing related yeah yeah themed around climbing. yeah yeah Yeah. i mean i yeah so I mean, I mean, you've you 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 do the climbing zine. We haven't mentioned that yet. Founder creator of the climbing zine, mm-hmm. which we'll get into here in just a sec. But I mean, I wanted to ask like, how have you seen your writing evolve over the years? But it's been pretty centrally themed around climbing. But have you seen like yeah. an arc or some kind of evolution? Um, I'm I'm sure you've seen vast improvement, of course, since yeah. early days. But yeah, how, any evolution or of course, yeah, because I. You know, I was kind of a bad, notoriously bad student um, mm-hmm. all my whole life. Um, I was kind of diagnosed with ADD at a young age and, and put on Ritalin at like a crazy, <laughs> I was put on Ritalin like eight years old or something. Wow. Yeah. Um, before they knew that you shouldn't do that to kids. 
Um, but I, I had this, all this passion, you know, so I was able to take the passion to a certain point, but then what happened was I needed to learn the craft of writing because I never got a degree in English and Mm -hmm. I never really studied the mechanisms of writing. And and I still need to hire a copy editor. Uh, Myself, Lindsay Nelson has been actually, she lives in Gunnison Valley and she's been editing my stuff since I was writing for the college newspaper. How do I not know her? Yeah, yeah. She's <laughs> she's pretty low-key, but okay. she's great. She runs an editing business, okay. and um, she's literally been my editor since, like, I didn't know where a comma went. And still, <laughs> I don't really know where a comma goes. Me neither. But I had to, uh, the big shift for me was doing the dirtbag thing after college for a couple years and then getting injured one winter and realizing, and I don't ski, it's kind of another definitive thing about me is that I've lived in Crested Butte and Gunnison. And now people give me shit in Durango for not skiing. And yeah. it's like, it's Durango, you know, Durango yeah, yeah. is not a ski town. But uh, I've lived in all these ski towns and I, I lived in Salt Lake one winter. Did which you is, really? Yeah. I didn't know that. I lived in a basement and I was washing dishes and my car was broken down and the basement didn't have heat. Oh so it was like a sad song. Yeah. And, uh, <laughs> but every climber I think has this moment of, um, all right, I need some meaning in my life beyond dirtbagging and climbing. Because in, in those days, I think now you can get a little more out of it. But then before you, you know, before even like blogs, like you talk about Crestview Magazine and then there's like the Mountain Gazette and newspapers. All I could do to get published was write for print publications. And it was just slim pickings. So I kind of had this moment of clarity that I needed to get a job. And luckily I got a job at Western, my alma mater. Um, like three names ago when it was still called Western State College. You, you got it. Yep, exactly. <laughs> um, stop changing your name. Yeah, I know. It's very confusing. <laughs> very confusing. <laughs> um, but that was probably the, the like, a formative decision to write every day, to have a nine-to-five, to have someone to answer to. And then going back to, like, opposing sides, I remember I was in charge of writing the uh, alumni magazine, and one of the first things they wanted me to do was write a feature of military vets. Mm. And um, this was, you know, still during the Iraq War. I think this was probably 2007. I can't remember when the Iraq War officially ended. But initially I was resistant because I'm like a peace-loving hippie, you know. And then I talked to all these veterans, and they were so interesting. And uh, there's this guy named – well, I'm not going to say his name because I'm not not sure if he was part of this one or not. But I got – there was one of the guys who was with – when JFK got assassinated. Wow. A Secret Service agent was went to Western. Wow! He was with he was one of the Secret Service agents when JFK got assassinated. That's crazy. And I got to interview this guy. Yeah. And then I interviewed people in Iraq and in other wars, and I was like, well, this is actually fascinating. Mm-hmm. And so that that kind of also, you know, just showed me that you you never know someone's story until you actually talk to them, and just because it might be different than you politically, it can still be interesting. And 100%. Yeah, so getting getting that job and then and having to write boring stories, like having to write about a building renovation. Like, I wrote so many of those, but it was so good for me because I was the natural poet. I was like, I'm just writing from the heart. Yeah. But if you want to be a writer, you have to learn the craft, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. So I spent about two and a half, three years, and then uh, uh, big changes happened at the university when I was there. And I, I kind of wanted more freedom. And basically, I quit my job during that recession of, you know, that 2007 to 2011. Yeah. And kind of a bad decision financially, but I took that next year to just write. And I used all these skills. I was doing web work. I was doing um, press releases. I was putting a magazine together. 
And so during my year of unemployment, I just put all those to use and started a publishing business and started the climbing zine. Yeah, yeah. that's amazing. <laughs> uh, speaking of vets, just real quick, a little side tangent. Do you know Sebastian Younger, the book Tribe? Yeah, I've heard of this book, and I, I think I've listened to him talk a bit. Yeah, we yeah. were joking this morning yeah. how, about how little you read <laughs> yeah, yeah. outside of work. But. Well, I, I, yeah, I'm not a, I'm not a vivacious reader. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like many people are. Yeah, recommend the book. Yeah, I mean, it's it's all about like community. You know, where, you know, it's kind of broader picture climbing community in relation to this. But everyone wants to be needs to be a part of something. Yeah, part of a tribe, mm-hmm. part of a community. Mm-hmm. They need to feel needed. Yeah, and he uses the military as like pretty much the main example through the book we talks about uh you know native nations as well and in times of struggle and times of war people really bond together like after 9-11 like mm-hmm. there was no political divide like, right people wanted to hug each other yeah same thing like during world war ii and mm-hmm. you know big wars and stuff it, yeah. anyway really good book yeah stacy bear that book i just gave mike the climbing zine book he yep. does he does stacy bear is a veteran too and a good friend of mine he mm-hmm. does reference uh sebastian younger's book oh totally yeah 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 it's yeah, an easy read yeah, so, yeah. okay yeah. all right i'll put it on the list yeah <laughs> yeah well the zine and you you just broke down how the zine kind of came together and you, you were breaking into a world that like you know was still i don't know how print media was doing at that time 10 years ago was it like starting to go downhill or i mean i don't say go downhill but like just with the internet and and everything print media is it is where does that sit right now in like the larger scheme of of um of reading of articles like yeah that's still a prominent figure in that world yeah it is and luckily i'm I'm not great at being aware of trends or following trends Mm -hmm. because if i would have been super aware in 2010, so much was going online. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's my point, I guess. Yeah. yeah. But the reality is right now is it never went away. Mm-hmm. You know, um, books had their best year since the last recession or since the recession. I believe it. Because people were at home reading. Exactly. But people, you know, we're sitting in this this camper um, RV right now, and, and I'm looking and I'm seeing books on the shelf. Yep. And climbers, cri- climbers read books, but I think the general public – uh, I think there's some Kindle people, but I think mm. there's so much digital, you know, digital. We all spend so much time staring at a computer. I know I do for my job. The last thing I want to do when I'm reading a book is stare at a screen. Mm. Um, so the it's it's really nostalgia in a lot of ways, but I think it's also just not wanting to look at a screen. And I've got this crazy advantage with the climbing zine right now because we're the only one doing it independently in the rock climbing front. Like right. climbing and rock and ice have been absorbed by the outside media conglomerate. Mm-hmm. I mean, and so I'm really the only one doing it. And then now if you have a print thing that people value, they're putting that on their coffee table, right. which in my mind, that's sacred space. <laughs> so if someone comes over to your house, they're not going to, you're going to see your iPhone sitting there, but everyone has an iPhone. They're going to see this thing. They're going to pick it up and they're going to look at it. Mm-hmm. And then in a lot of ways, they're going to want to support what I'm doing. It's like, wow, there's someone still doing this. Mm-hmm. And so it's, you know, my, my business is booming. I'm not like trying to get rich, um, but my business is growing every year and I'm selling more and more. And, and it's kind of like the secret that doesn't, I don't want it to be a secret, but it's still passed from person to person. Like you got to check out the climbing zine. Yeah. So print is alive and well it's just it's hard to break into like it would be hard to start another print yeah um publication right now because the, the costs are so high but you know i'm sitting on thousands of zines in storage that i can still sell and everything so i just kind of 
I got lucky. I, it wasn't like I'm not a great businessman. Same thing with business, learning the craft of writing. Um, but I think it, it boils down to nostalgia and it boils down to you get this like we were talking about reading books earlier this headspace that book reading gets to you or zine reading it's it's just it's just a different thing mm-hmm. um and i think it's ancient you know and mm-hmm. um it's yeah print media is still still alive and well but yeah. i think like mag like i always say magazines are going to be dead in 10 years yeah you can get all that on the internet or on social media yeah I, yeah i didn't mean to misspeak earlier when i was saying going downhill but it's like i was like there's a tr- i feel like there was a trend there for maybe a bit or maybe now that i've learned maybe not existent in my head but that yeah, print media was kind of starting to go to the wayside because you can get everything online and you're breaking into a, an industry or a field with publications like climbing rock and ice alpinist yeah but you're doing it completely different yeah i mean you're telling stories so like yeah. you're, you're, you're doing you have a different niche you've, yeah. you've built a different role but if you look at climbing magazines from the early 90s and early 2000s i know they're sitting around you know climbing gyms and stuff oh, totally. it was there were very similar stories that mm-hmm. i would get now mm-hmm. they just pivoted and in that you know, I walked into, we don't need to go too far down the rabbit hole of, of climbing media, but the, um, you know, they used to have 12 people in house mm-hmm. at, at some of these publications. And now there's, you know, probably two or three people working remotely Yeah, and things have changed now. But, um, yeah, it's, uh, it's just been this weird blessing, but it's also like the, cl- I think, you know, your audience, like climbing climbers really want, and also don't pay attention to trends in general because, Sometimes trends are just wrong, and what the media says is wrong. And it's like like you followed Tesla, like mm-hmm. you know they were t- t- trying to take down Elon forever, and, <laughs> and Elon just keeps winning, you know. Yeah. And they're still like, yeah. you know, I don't know, but <laughs> I, I I think it's alive and well, and it, it's I, I think the climbing community values, you know, bringing it back to climbing and in our world and our community, we value things, and then we support things that we value. And if you get a, you know, climbers don't have big pocketbooks, but a lot of climbers can afford fifteen dollars for a subscription, you know. Yeah, we were talking about sprinter vans earlier. Yeah, <laughs> the working man. <laughs> um, yeah, I've I've read not all the zines. Some of them are out of print, but uh, yeah. I think I'm like halfway through. You know, you know, I got I got a hold all of them on the, on my bookshelf. I got all I have all your books on my bookshelf. I've read all your books too, and um, yeah, it's been a source of inspiration, man. Really want to like acknowledge you right now for a second for the vision you had. And you never deviated, like listening to one of your early interviews from your podcast, which we'll talk about here later, but with our friend, Sean, yeah. better friend, you know, Sean more, of your, Savage, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, more of your friend than mine. But, um, you said you both, you said a couple of things in there that really just like lit a fire under me. And I was uh-huh. like, it was, it was awesome. Like getting out to OR, doing your thing, making sure you like put in the due diligence to make sure you can promote this thing um, yeah, yeah. very well. And, and like, I'm just want to acknowledge that uh that uh, motivation you had it's thank awesome. you yeah, yeah yeah it is it's still i still feel the same fire and and i feel you know as we move into talking about activism and um you know speaking up for what is right i feel like now that i have this audience even more i, I need to be even more clear of what i think is right and and what my emotions are and and yeah move, move like talking about bears ears and stuff it's mm-hmm. like i i needed to write a book that was like this is how i feel in this moment this is exactly how i feel this is what i believe is right this is what i believe is wrong and i wrote that um in like 2016 2017 as the protections were given and then take it away (laughs) and then now given back and in four years it'll hopefully we can get some good work done in these four years Mm -hmm. and not we you know it's it's really the the entities like the access fund and the bears ears and tribal coalition and a lot of other groups that will do the we're in the government, you know, the, the BLM and the 
the park service and everything. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, right on. But thank you. Yeah. yeah no, no, you <laughs> bet, man. I've been meaning to tell you that for a long time. Um, is there anything you've learned from the people that have contributed contributed to the zine? Yeah. The authors, the stories. Like, you don't have to pick a favorite one per se, yeah. but has there been any that's been like particularly impactful to you? So much. I mean, starting with uh, veterans, mm-hmm. um, you know, they have been through so much, like going to Iraq or Afghanistan. And, and Stacey Bear, I think, is one that comes to mind right away because we met. I had volume one of the climbing zine. I was unemployed. I was on my first assignment for the Durango Telegraph. And I'm here comes this big dude, six foot seven, bald, <laughs> just but just goofy. You could just tell he had good energy. And he picked up the zine and looked at it. He's like, without uh, climbing, I'd be dead or in jail. It was the first word in the first zine ever printed, yep. and he reads that. He just picks it up. The first time we ever met, and he's like, the same thing is true for me. Mm-hmm. So we have this equal bond. But then I hear his story, and I hear uh, of all the places he's went to, and I hear of his battles with depression and, and climbing, um, you know, saved his life. And then he, he moved on. He does a lot of sports, and, and right now he's doing his Happy Grizzly um, tours with, you know, um, I don't know exactly what they do, but I know it's – a lot aimed at veterans healing through the land that they fought for. Uh, he, he uses that a lot. And mm-hmm. he's also said, you know, if we all climb, we could achieve world peace, which is like, <laughs> you meet some 19 year old stoner kid who grew up in the suburbs. He says that it doesn't have weight. No. Someone like Stacy bear who has served in Iraq uh, and, and, and been in the military and believed in, in that. And then also become disillusioned in a lot of ways, which I think anyone who fought in Iraq or Afghanistan, mm-hmm. there's a lot of big questions there that, um, so starting with something like that and then, you know, moving on to, you know, someone like, uh, like a Devin Dabney, um, or an Angela, um, Lee who, um, write about their experiences in, in climbing and in the world you know, as for a lack of a word, as like minorities, you know, and so like you're a black climber, your experience is going to be so different than a white climber because of our country. Um, and with, yeah, Angela Lee, she's from uh, South Korea and, um, and she, she writes San Luis Valley. And she lives in the San Luis Valley. Not, and she's crushing it. Yeah. yeah I've never met me. her actually in person, which is either. another weird thing. Yep. Um, same with Devin. I'm Devin and I have had many conversations over the phone, but we've never met in person. So I have these pen pal friends. But they've expanded my um, world in a way that I never would have thought of if I couldn't work in depth with their stories. Because mm-hmm. when you're working with someone and they're telling their life story and they're bearing everything to you, they're really trusting you with their story. It's pretty vulnerable. Yeah, it's very vulnerable. So I feel this honor that like I've, I've been able to expand the scope of people that I interact with. And we all know like living in rural mountain towns and as you get older, if you don't go out into the world to try to expand it, your world becomes very small. Um, And you're not interacting with too many different types of people. Very Um, homogenous. Yeah, very homogenous. We have a lot of like Native American culture in Durango, but it's also in the neighborhoods, it's mostly white people. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, So, yeah, I I think overall, just to answer your question, it's just these people that are willing to tell their life stories. And then especially now we're, we're undergoing a major change in our society, you know, and, and climbing is getting more diverse mm-hmm. and, you know, it just used to be white males. <laughs> I yeah. feel like even when women, when there were more women in climbing in general, I was like, oh, thank God. Yeah. This is just, <laughs> and then now <laughs> I think like diversity brings a lot to climbing and, and makes climbing better. And it does. just to be able to be part of meaningful stories too, because I think there's a lot of um, 
mistakes that are being made in our industry with just like tokenizing of just like oh you guys want more diversity here we're just going to change all our advertising Mm -hmm. you know where that's that's not going to do meaningful change i mean i think that's great that they are showing you know i I wrote in the zine you know two years ago that you guys need to show more than just white people when you're advertising and, and now that it's it's become a lot more diverse in the advertising but if there's not storytelling and meaningful action also with that, it's going to be nothing. But mm-hmm. yeah, I, I just feel honored to that people will entrust me with their life stories of being very, very vulnerable. Um, like I just think of Angela and she's just very vulnerable about being honest. Like she, she had, you know, it's funny, Devin and Angela and then Stacy too, they all, they had this uh, depression point and, and all of them mentioned, <laughs> you know, reaching a point of, of being suicidal and then climbing in, in, the, in nature as part of the healing you know, process, but, yeah. uh, and Angela went to South Korea. I think she, she made a film about it and she was, you know, she's like covered in tattoos and like going into a bathhouse in Korea, just feeling so judged because she's a woman with tattoos, yeah. you know, where in, in the United States, it would, you people don't even look twice anymore, no, no. but just being vulnerable to say, this is, um, this affects my self-esteem. This affects my life, um, to be trusted with the being in that process and then printing out 10,000 of these and, and telling that story and then you know, Instagram posts and um, on the website and everything. It's like you can reach a lot of people, and then those people are inspiring other people to to show their true selves, you know? So, right, right. Yeah. I mean, the zine's a global thing, right? It is, I yeah. Mean, <laughs> where, where's the craziest thing that we're – or what's the craziest location that you've heard of Well, I just shipped to Hong Kong last okay. week, and I was like, man, I wonder if the Chinese government's going <laughs> to open this up. Is that uh, – it could be my buddy. Uh, well, we can talk about that out there. Yeah. I don't want yeah, <laughs> I mean, to say anyone's name. Yeah, with tra- <laughs> name here. Yeah, yeah name um, any names, but uh, but yeah. So that that, that I thought it's like, well, you know, Hong Kong's on the map of Chinese. China's really locking it down now, and, and yeah, taking away their their freedoms and stuff. So it's like, oh wow, I wonder if this is going to get through to this person. But apparently, there's a very vibrant climbing community mm-hmm. in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. which yeah. I didn't know. Yeah, um, some of the pictures this gentleman has posted on Instagram are pretty sweet. They're, yeah, it's pretty sick. I think the reality with shipping is that you're only going to reach like if you've been to Latin America, a lot of places in the world, you can't just sh- get a package. Right. <laughs> like, oh yeah. Keep Brett in Ecuador. My homie in Ecuador, we were just talking about Ecuador mm-hmm. last night. Yeah. It's like, don't send me a package. Just wait till I come to the United States every yeah. year. Yeah. Um, so I think it's a luxury. So I think, you know, a lot of it's Europe, um, yeah. in Canada, I'd yep. say those are my, my two main places, but I'll get a, a Mexico order. I'll get a South American order. I'll get mm. a, uh, I've seen South Africa maybe pop up once or twice, but yeah, um, yeah. killer, yeah, so awesome. I reread your essay in the Creek Guidebook uh-huh. before I came out here. Yeah. I read it, you know, when it, when the book came first came out, like four years ago or uh-huh. three, four years ago, yeah. five years ago, whatever it was. Um, and you know, your name is synonymous with Indian Creek. I mean, you have a book called The Desert. Mm-hmm. When people think Luke Mehal, they're probably thinking of Indian Creek. At least mm-hmm. I do. Mm-hmm. Um, but I read that essay, and you came out here in 99, 2000? Yeah, I came yeah. out here Thanksgiving um, night of 99, slept alone in my car, yeah. and then found my buddies at Supercrack. Yeah. yeah, and the most interesting thing I found in that article was, like, you were not in love with this place no, at the no, start. You're like, no. what, what is this? What not is even this 10 years. I would say it took 10 or 11 years, maybe yeah. 12 years, to yeah. really fall in love with this place. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. kind of was like, wow, you know? Just giving like your association with this place and everything, and how much uh, effort you've put into caring for it, you know, you, I, w- I would think initially, I think um, that you felt you fell in with it. It was just like love at first sight, but it wasn't. Not even close. Why? Well, 
I think first of all, I think I really like granite climbing first, and I quickly gravitated towards big walls. Yeah, you spent a lot of time in Yosemite. Yeah, Joshua and I Tree. also yeah. Um, and the beauty of this place, I think, it's very subtle. I think some people fall in love with it at first. Um, but for whatever reason, no, not at all. It just I liked it. I liked crack climbing, but a couple years into climbing, it was just all about big walls, mm-hmm. and so. Um, you know, like Yosemite, they call it Yosemite the center of the universe. Mm-hmm. Um, the Black Canyon, I think, is that way for a lot of us, too. A little more <laughs> intimidating center of the universe, indeed. But I, I've seen worse things happen in Yosemite that have in, in the Black, so that's another <laughs> story. But, um, yeah, I, it was just all about big walls, and um, you know, I'd come here, but it would all it would always be, um, I don't know what it was, but when I really started to fall in love with it is when I moved to Durango, I was close. And and I started to put up first ascents, mm-hmm. and that that just that's a rabbit hole I'm still going down. Uh, I think it's somewhat peaked, just because we had a, a group of friends in our 30s where we were able to dedicate the time to putting up new routes, building, you know, you know, making good trails up to the wall. Um, so that's what really made me fall in love with it. And then I also, you know, I have zero interest in big walls now. Mm-hmm. Um, like I'd still maybe like to do another trip up El Cap, but I never go to the Black Canyon. I've just I feel like I got got away with a lot, made some mistakes, and and just as I get older, that wear and tear on the body that like big wall climbing <laughs> endures and it's like mostly and work and multi pitch, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and and just you know close calls and different things like that. So it's um, and I've had close calls out here too, putting yeah. up new routes, um, but. Yeah, there, I, there was something about the subtle beauty of this place, um, and then it just keeps kind of growing on you, but it's also harsh, too, mm-hmm. you know? But, yeah, I would say it was a good 11 years before I started climbing here. Mm-hmm. And it was always climbing in bigger groups here, which is fine, and I like that, but once it was like a smaller group of dedicated friends way out in, in the edges of the Indian Creek Corridor, what we call the Indian Creek Corridor, I just started like like where you can hear silence and you're like you can think and you know like it, that was a different vibe versus you know being at the catwall with a hundred other people yeah you know? yeah or Super Bowl with banging yeah. subwoofers and stuff yeah and I <laughs> like I I love those Super Bowl parties back in the day I mean there's and, a time yeah, and a place for a it time and a place yeah. And, but now that I'm in my early 40s, you know, it's like 10 o'clock rolls around. I'm like, I really want to go to bed. To go to bed. <laughs> yeah. We tried to find our friends at a, a party at a Hamburger Rock a few weekends ago. We couldn't find them. And it was like 9, 30, 10. I'm like, oh, I'm so tired. I don't yeah. even care about this party. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah fair enough. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, that's yeah. kind of how I feel, too. <laughs> um, when was that first ascent that you did? The first, first yeah, ascent? Yeah, it was called Snaggletooth. Mm-hmm. might still be unrepeated at the Broken Tooth Wall. Mm-hmm. And it was the winter of 2011, and I was with uh, yeah Tim Folks and and Two Tent Timmy. Yeah, yeah. I, I've heard those names a lot. Yeah, yeah we playing croquet with Tim with Tim Folks last night. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> and I got smoked by everyone, <laughs> <laughs> and I got bit by a dog. Oh man. <laughs> um, well, like contributing to something as as meaningful as like first ascents and making a new mark on a place, I think is. It's just that it's meaningful. I mean, I I reap the benefits of everyone that came before me everywhere I go. I haven't put up a first ascent anywhere, and I I got the luxury of a guidebook. You know, I was like, oh, you know, this person did this, this person did that, and I can just go do it. Like, you used to put up some roots of Hartman's though, haven't you? 
Uh, I maybe. Yeah. You know, Harvard's <laughs> is a place where it's right. like you can't maybe. So you got a first assignment. Yeah, yeah. Totally, These were yeah. like Boulder problems. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. Like, yeah, there's yeah, no yeah. chalk in this right, thing. You never like, know. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it, like how could anyone pass this up? Um, I might have two. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. but it's like there's like one beautiful finger crack like right off the a biking trail. Uh huh. It's like no one noticed this. This would be nuts. Yeah. There's no anchor. So. Yeah. I don't know. Totally. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. I aspire to do, do some. We mm-hmm. were talking about. Uh, our friend Mike was asked yesterday, like, what would you name a route? Right. If you're your first one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think mine would be Shasta McNasty. All right. I don't know why. <laughs> Just like, that was like a show from like the early 2000s or uh-huh. like, or like, or like late 90s or something. Nice. I just think it's a cool name. Yeah, but, uh, that's a great name. Well, yeah. If I come across one. Yeah. All right. We'll find it. We'll find it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, how does, how does that feel? Like how you had a whole group of folks, uh, you and your good buddies going and you developed an entire area that I got to finally experienced yesterday yeah cable yeah, yeah it's spectacular how does yeah. that how can you like when you walk away from indian creek and however many years down the road that is what are you what are you gonna be left with how's that how's that gonna feel i don't i don't know how it will feel um i really don't because i i just did i kind of pe- i just i just did my five-year project um mm-hmm. this thing we called the queen and it's uh 0.5s 0.5 camelot purple juniors um and it took it took me five years of working it to do it, and it was great. But when it was over, I think any climbing accomplishment there's a, an emptiness because it doesn't actually mean anything. Like I'm not a professional climber; mm-hmm. no one's gonna care. It's not standard setting, so it felt great when I did it. But then there's this emptiness because then it's like, what are you? What do you want next? Mm-hmm. Um, it's always what's next. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it, it's. And I think you have to be true to yourself as you get older. And, and I, I've realized I don't think I can actually put my fingers through that <laughs> kind of thing ever again. Yeah. So it's like a very clear high point. Like people have their clear high points and I, I feel lucky that I've had it. But there is an emptiness after it's over. Um, but when we started, it was just like, all right, I want to do one. And then it's, one first it's ascent. One first ascent in the creek. Mm-hmm. That's all I wanted. But then I'm an obsessive. I'm an addictive personality. It's like, No not just one like i want it all mm-hmm. you know so <laughs> like I, I wanted it all and and but that actually made me a better climber because i started putting anchors on things i couldn't do mm-hmm. and you know it, it's for me it's hard to get motivated to do something really hard if it's not a first ascent mm. but when it's a first ascent i'll give it everything but it also doesn't have a grade yeah so you're not like i'm not like this that the queen we gave it a 13 minus rating it needs to be confirmed but i've never even climbed 513 sport route yeah um and i've done a lot of cracks i think are in that like 12 plus range and they need to be confirmed to actually get you know i, I feel like pretty yeah. strong about that like mm-hmm. when people are just like oh it's b17 it's like well did someone else confirm that right. or are you just trying to get more totally. attention but sure um yeah it just was like this obsession and then luckily i had friends that were obsessed too and we just yeah we found this great wall the cave wall um and that just it made me push it, push it. But the cool, the byproduct is when other people get experiences like you were up there for the first time. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's really what you walk away with is that if other people appreciate your work that you did, because obviously Mother Nature did all the work, you know, like these cracks. Don't you mention that? I think you mentioned yeah, that in that it's essay. Like, yeah. yeah, it's like whatever, because we, we use this like I guess like colonizer, like establish, discover. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like no, Mother Nature put that up there. You know, yeah. the ancestral Puebloans walked by it a thousand years ago. They just weren't climbing cracks. Right. They were climbing other things out here. Yeah. Which is, is, is another conversation too. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think it's really like like bringing you guys up to cave wall yesterday and everyone's just excited mm-hmm. and that energy 
or if I get a message from somebody. So I, I feel like that's what it's about is if you can do something that other people, or even just the sport route at your local crag when people appreciate it. And there's a downside to that too, because I put up plenty of one star, two star routes in my local crag and people shit on them. And yeah, you, yeah. you take that personally, you're like, <laughs> well, what? It's the rock. It's not like I sculpted the rock. It's just, I'm just trying to put another 510 in because Durango doesn't have any 510s. Yeah, you know? yeah, yeah. And uh, it doesn't have that enough, you know? Mm-hmm. So it's kind of funny. Like, people, you take it personally either way, but so you try not to, you know, try not to get too high when people are praising you and try to, you don't get too low when people are like, you know, I've had rope stolen or people just shit it on your roots or it's mm-hmm. not as hard as you said it was or whatever. That That's a weird feeling. But I think when people genuinely appreciate it and you they've had an experience because you put in some work, I think that's that's the end of the day. That That's where it lies is mm-hmm. that they're, you're enhanced. Like people are out here having an experience, especially away from the crowds, you know, because people are like, oh, the creek's so crowded. But at Cave Wall, I mean, there's been a couple times where it's been crowded, but it's it's fallen off. Like the popularity is just usually like one other party there or something mm-hmm. and, and you ideally become friends with those people because you're in, in that ha- same remote experience too. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I was out here, you know, like I mentioned um, to you guys yesterday, I was out here two weeks ago for my birthday. We went to two off the beaten path, two, three star crags. Had the Saturday we had it all to ourselves, like right next to the four by four wall, all to ourselves. And then in the next uh, Sunday, it was actually a busier. It's not the crag like out Donnelly Canyon, the end of the Canyon there, oh, but the Habitato or the whatever. Habitato. Yeah. yeah. That's so on the map now, yeah. Yeah, you can yeah. still you can still find those nooks and crannies around here where it's, you know, it's not the cat wall where you get like you know ten star roots or whatever, but it's still good. Yeah, and there's no one around. It's totally, nice. the, yeah. The creek is big. The Chris Schulte wrote that one time. The desert is big. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, what kind of changes have you seen over twenty years climbing here? Honestly, it's for the better. Mm-hmm. Um, I have made every mistake in the book out here. Um, from pooping to not being aware of petroglyphs. Um, I found a picture of my first t- cr- creek trip, you know, when you have your po- your, your pictures mm-hmm. that you have in a, yeah, yeah, in a yeah, box. Yeah. <laughs> and I was bouldering on this route, and it, the route has since had the anchors taken off of it because it has petroglyphs right at the base. Mm-hmm. So I was so dumb and unaware that I was, like, bouldering at the base of this route. Now, like, you see a petroglyph, it's a no-no. You don't climb near petroglyphs. It's not only the law, it's just... Everyone's aware of it. Yep. Um, there were almost zero toilets out here when I started climbing here, mm-hmm. which there was a big environmental impact study years ago. I'm probably using the wrong terminology, but someone did a study at a university and said the number one issue at the creek was human waste. Mm-hmm. Um, the campgrounds have now been built out that hundreds of people can stay at Creek Pasture and Super Bowl. I think that um, the Cottonwoods is a mess. Mm-hmm. I don't even go near there now, but I know mm-hmm. there's just probably so much human waste out there. Um, but that's also like a state of Utah kind of issue. That's a state land. That's state land over there. Yeah, yep. but hopefully with the monument status, they can get some toilets in there or shut that site down. Mm. Um, I don't want to be on record <laughs> saying they should yeah. shut it down, but <laughs> I, I think you have to be responsible about human waste. You have to be responsible about respecting um, petroglyphs and native history out here. Um, but I, I can't think of that many changes especially because i know where to get away from the crowds yeah um i I just i I can't think of any negatives like Mm -hmm. i I guess when people aren't responsible um when they do like leave toilet paper out we found that a couple times where people you know don't know how to go to the bathroom in the outdoors but i feel like the community is pretty good at educating and i feel like there's this weird peer pressure 
at the creek. Uh, and some people take it too far, especially with the rain. I feel like people are like fucking Nazis sometime <laughs> with the rain. It's like it's not a it's not a guarantee. Like if it rains a little bit, if it rains a ton and it's saturated, you shouldn't climb. But if it just rains a little bit and you're on some route that's overhanging, mm-hmm. you can maybe get away with it. Right. Um, so I feel like there is this peer pressure uh, within the community now to do the right thing. Mm-hmm. And, and maybe sometimes we're, we take it a little too far, like yelling at people after climbing in the rain. Yeah. There is a time and place for that, but but it's it's very nuanced, I think I feel, with the rain issue. But sure. I, I can't think – and, and then having the protections, seeing what the, the ranchers have done out here, um, and then the Bears Ears Intertribal Coalition advocating at the highest levels of government for protection. I just – I know I – know there are, yeah, some human waste issues. I know there's some, you know, just a little bit of trash here and there. And then, you know, people making sites where they didn't used to be. That's what I've seen Yeah, in my yeah. short nine years yeah. of climbing here, yeah. just under a decade. I'm like, oh, yeah. I've, I used to never see people camping over there. Mm-hmm. Like, I think going out uh, Beef Basin Road down there on the left, there's a couple spots. I'm like, huh. That seems kind of newish. Yeah. That spot over there seems kind of newish. That's that's been kind of the big thing for me, I think. And I hopefully the climber stewards can help address I was that. Mention that. Yeah, yeah. I think it's great the Access Fund has climber stewards out here. Yep. Um, but when I just when I think of it, I think Carl Kelly's new guidebook has mm-hmm. added a uh, benefit of spreading out the crowds and you know giving good information. And we all joked about getting bloomed. <laughs> you know, like <laughs> that terminology has gone away. No yeah. disrespect. Yeah. Um, to David Bloom, but I think the new guidebook is better and more comprehensive. Mm-hmm. Um. And just the essays help too, yeah. um, just te- storytelling. But yeah. um, overall, I, I think all the entities have, have done a good job from the Bears Ears Inland Tribal Coalition to the Red, the ranchers out here. I think they've been here forever. Mm-hmm. They've been here forever. And I think they're pretty good stewards of of the land. Tim and I were talking about this last night. It's like, well, if you, you know, people complain about cows busting the crust and, and there is, you have, they have to like manage it correctly. And right. But it's like if you eat organic beef, that's the organic beef you're eating, right. you know. Like yeah, totally. so, uh, those Goes people are ways. feeding us, and those people are living off the land. Yeah. And, and they've worked ways. a lot with the Nature Conservancy and the Access Fund, and yep. they're still hosting, you know, events. Um, I think the folks from Natives Outdoors, uh, Aaron mm-hmm. Mike, and mm-hmm. um, those folks were out there um, meeting with the ranchers and the Access Fund. Yep. So I, I just see a coalescing here. Um, you know, I'd just say the the main the main bummer was when the protections were rescinded um, by the Trump administration, but now that's been reversed and yeah. like it's Utah. So it could go on forever, but hopefully in three and a half years, some work can get done, even if the next election doesn't go great. Yeah. Know? What, uh, what was your initial reaction? How did you feel when, when that day happened and the protections were rescinded? It just a, another, just like a lot of anger um, and just a lot of anger, like when Trump was elected, you know, mm-hmm. like a January 6th level of anger, <laughs> but I am not a, a nut job, so I wasn't gonna go storm the Capitol. Mm-hmm. Um, but that, yeah, I would say that level of anger, mm-hmm. yeah, that level of anger, yeah, just disappointment, but also it's a realization. I mean, it's I'm a privileged white male, and maybe I didn't see the country as it truly was, and was hoping that we were moving on past past things, but obviously mm-hmm. we weren't, and yeah, and it might even yeah been part of just being thinking things were better as a white male <laughs> mm-hmm. and and then realizing that they weren't, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. yeah. You said you're talking with Aaron Mike. Yeah. Soon. Uh-huh. I had him on early on. He I was listened to that. Kind of one of the earlier episodes. Yeah. It was like yeah. 14 or something like that. Yeah. Um, awesome dude, doing great work. Yeah. Um, is there anything that you anticipate talking to him about or how, how would you like to maybe connect 
climbers to the native um, values of this place. It's just it's just storytelling. So mm-hmm. it's uh, Aaron wrote a really great essay in Volume 18 that was originally published by the American Alpine Club, and um, he he tells the the Navajo creation story of these worlds. Um, I think there's three or four four worlds, and then he incorporated his own telling of his life story into those worlds. So mm-hmm. his fourth world or his fifth world was discovering climbing and discovering his place in the world. And he's a Diné Navajo uh, climber. And um, so it's really just letting him tell his stories. And then the other part of his stories is like, well, we we, we always tell the climbing creation story of Ed, Sir Edmund Hillary conquering, you know. Conquer. Conquering Colonize, the mountain. Yeah, discover. yeah, exactly. So, yeah. Um, at a basic level, it's just let let Aaron give just like any of these other authors I talked about. Let let him tell his story and and listen mm-hmm. and you know I think he had a quote. Maybe it was maybe in your podcast or maybe it was something else because he's been in several ones now. He's in climbing gold too with Len Nessifer. Yep. And it's um, he's like well, indigenous people know a little bit about sustainability. <laughs> you oh know? yeah, for sure. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So um, yeah, I think it's just just listening to stories and it's fascinating, you know, because the um, there's there's people that live in in these places where we are that have histories that go back, um, you know, thousands of years, um, with a connection to this land and mm-hmm. kept they took better care of the land than the way the United States of America is taking care of the land. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's, a, it's a, not a funny realization, but you know, once you kind of I mean I had some a, a few epiphany moments talking to some of these. Um, folks like Aaron and uh, Brianna uh, Mazzolini Blanchard. I had her on. I don't know if you're familiar with her or not. Um, she's she's a incredible person. I never got. I I don't know her. I don't know her like uh-huh. face to face, but I had her on the show a few episodes ago. And man, she can just speak so intelligently and well spoken uh-huh. about all these issues and stuff. It's it's just amazing. Yeah, to have that, those realizations and when it when it does. When you do those realizations, it hits over the head like a sack of bricks. At least mm-hmm. for me, it was. It's like damn wow they're right mm-hmm. <laughs> we have so much catching up to do mm-hmm. and, and improvement to, to work upon yep yeah I, I i've been thinking a lot about this um notion or theme of creative advocacy and advocacy through being just a creative person like yourself and uh, there's so many of us out there or so many of you guys out there um like yourself, uh, Chris Hampton, I put this in this category, Jeremy Collins, um, that, you know, they're out, out there maybe doing stewardship work per se or advocacy work in the in the way that we might often think about it. And I don't want to cast such a wide net over what advocacy means. I'm going to ask you what your definition of advocacy is here in a little bit. But oh <laughs> <laughs> um, to like, I don't want to cast such a wide net of what advocacy could be to like to dilute the, the term. But um I th- like you and Chris and Jeremy, like you're doing it you, you, through your through your writing and everything, and through your speaking. Um, you're doing it in such a wonderful way of advocating for a community. And and I heard this. Uh, do you know who Chase Jarvis is? I don't think I do. He's an he's an entrepreneur out of Seattle, um, and he has a whole company called Creative Live. And he just had Tim Ferriss on uh, this past week. So I listened to that podcast and then drive out here. And he quoted uh, Maya Angelou, mm-hmm. and she has some quote to the effect of. The more creativity you use, the more you have to spend. Mm. Something like that. You kind of like it's kind of like a bank. You like put more creativity in the bank, then you have more to spend later. I like that. Yeah, and I see that with you, Luke. Like you started off with the zine, 
and now um, through your creative pursuits of first ascents around the creek and everything and all the work you've done here you are now diving into the podcast world um, you started your own lco in uh in durango so i'm gonna talk about the podcast a little bit first the, the dirtbag state of mind podcast um what was the what was the impetus what was the inspiration to move into that um spoken word instead of the written was that like a business uh, pivot from the zine a little bit or help support that tell us a little bit, bit more about your uh, about your podcast definitely yeah so I, I think i have ideas all the time like talking about being creative and i have certain people i run ideas by that i really trust and because i think you, you got to very very much protect your ideas and People like to say, don't take things personal, which is the stupidest vice ever. <laughs> I take everything personal because it's my baby and it's my heart. So yeah. I have these people, like I have my friend Brian Acoin, who is a sticker business, uh, sticker art. I think it's called Animus Outdoors now. Um, and he's an advocate for you know public lands. And I just one day I was like, hey, do you think a book on tape podcast would be a good idea? And he's like, yeah. Yeah, do it. <laughs> so, do it. Yeah. Um, but it, it was a pivot. I mean, you know, just having all of your um, – eggs in one basket or whatever with with print media um is a bit of a risk um and it ended up being a good decision because right after that happened you know print prices went through the roof mm. with, with everything that's going on in the world right mm -hmm. now and inflation um so it was a great way to reach like a bigger audience um so it's as simple as having an idea a friend telling me it was a good idea and then just following through on the idea mm -hmm. yeah getting a little windy out there yeah totally <laughs> Um. Yeah, that that's that's all I can really think of at this moment. But yeah, business wise, for me, it, it's very important to have several offerings with business mm -hmm. and not just a print publication. Yeah, 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 makes sense. How's the interviewing been going? Because like you said, you started off um, just uh, doing short stories, reading yeah. through your books and stuff, and now you've. I don't know if you're. I don't know how much you're making a pivot into, or just adding in uh, interviews. But yeah, how's the how's the interviewing going for you? It's it's adding to it. Um, I feel like it's it's uh it's tough. Like like with friends that you feel comfortable with, it, it's more of an organic conversation, like with us right now. Um, but if it's someone, um, like a Chris Hampton or a Chris Caloose. Um, those guys are pros at what they do and they've got hundreds of interviews done. And, and I, I can't say how much I respect those guys, you know, um, yeah. both of those two individuals. So I was intimidated to interview both of them and ended up being fine. You crushed um, it, dude. Yeah. Thank I you. Like, like all your questions. was just like nice bridges between, you know, transitions between topics. It was fantastic. Um, but I, I realized I was saying yeah, yeah, yeah a lot in those, <laughs> which maybe other people don't notice that, but I noticed it big time. So it's just like, all right, you don't have to actually talk like when you're talking in a normal conversation. But to try to get things out of those people, um, like with Calouse, I wanted to get the creation story of the Enorma cast. So I, I just really think about what the what has already been out there um, and, and what do you think the audience would actually like to know. And with Calouse, it was like, man, he started a podcast – well, four podcasts were cool, mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, and when you had to download them to your iPod, which now people are like, what's an iPod? Yeah, well, that's ancient history. <laughs> they don't even make iPods anymore, <laughs> which is a tragedy. Yeah. <laughs> I, I would love to have an iPod. Yeah. Um, and so it's, it's it was intimidating, but I've interviewed a lot of people for print, mm -hmm. um, which is more laborious. And often this format, you do have microphones, so people have to be comfortable with a microphone, but... 
um, I think it's a more natural way of, of interviewing people. Um, and you can get a, a, a bigger scope of work. You know, I think previously with print interviews, they're just so limiting. You mm-hmm. know, it's like it's like a talk show versus a podcast. It's like a talk show, you're going to get Seinfeld's new five bits. But, yeah. you know, with an hour-long interview, you might get some great insights from, from yeah. Seinfeld or yeah. whoever you're talking about, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, so intimidating at first, but then um, luckily everyone I've interviewed has been really patient with me and um, – People that also talk into a microphone for a living, they're they're pretty comfortable with it. So they want to help you out, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I've been loving the podcast. I've listened to quite a bit, and I hope your yeah your numbers are, are reflecting that as well in the listenership. It's 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 plugging <laughs> along. Yeah. And, and yeah. the cool thing about podcasts is it's easier to reach people in other countries. Yeah. Exactly. You know? So that that expands your audience quite a bit, mm-hmm. um, or you know, climbers are notorious for not spending money. Yeah, a, we know a lot of uh, thrifty people that maybe thrifty to a fault. Mm-hmm. Um, so even if people don't want to spend money, and I'm sure there's people that read the climbing scene that have never bought one, they just <laughs> get them at the creek or they get them from their friends. You give so much away for free too. I give a lot away for free, which is part of the marketing plan. Yes. Um, but yeah, podcasts is just like, well, if they have a smartphone and listen to podcasts, mm-hmm. you can now then have you can expand your audience especially mm-hmm. in, like in other countries but then that leads them for me as a business person that leads them to buying a zine or buying merch which yeah, fair enough. is how i keep the business going yeah know? right on sweet man how about the the new durango climbers coalition um, yeah yeah we we connected on that a while back i know you've been wanting to do this for quite some time now yeah. it seems like it's gotten established and you've gotten some work done already and got some sweet stickers and a logo and everything so yeah, yeah tell me a, bit, a little bit about your lco so I, I started it, but I started it out of necessity versus something I wanted to do. Because mm-hmm. I, I feel like what I've learned over time is, you know, especially as an artist, you can do a lot of things, but you have to really focus your, your time in a concerted effort over time. So don't distract yourself with a million other ideas yeah. um, so that you can't get work done. Because I'm not a workaholic, um, but I know if I do... If I yeah, that's, writing books taught me that it's like if you write a little bit every day, then you got a book, um, and you don't have to be Stephen King where you're writing ten thousand words every single day, you know. But yeah. even Stephen King only writes two thousand words a day, and he's got sixty thousand books. You know, I know. I'm, like, yeah, yeah. I, I really want to know how many books that guy actually has. Right? It's, yeah, it's, it's bonkers. It's it's amazing. Um, so Cascade Canyon in in the Durango area, it's actually in San Juan County, which is closer to Silverton, but it's our summer sport climbing crag it's absolutely beautiful it's got a waterfall Mm -hmm. and it's got this series of waterfalls that people jump as Mm -hmm. well and it's probably the best limestone it's chossy (laughs) but it's got like a few good roots and then it's just it's such a good hang and it's we we realize basically that part of it is on private property and and most of the good climbing is on private property so got you know i'm sure you've, you've done all this you know you get your register you know you get your bank account register at the state and it sat dormant for three or four years, and the issue sat pretty dormant, too. Um, and then during the pandemic, it was kind of interesting because during the pandemic, um, like people, you know, like my friend Taylor, who works at the American Alpine Club, he moved to Durango to work remotely. Um, Heather, who works for the Access Fund, moved to Durango. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden you know taylor has been a huge part of the, of the durango climbers coalition he's actually honestly done more work than i have um taylor lanu 
think I, I know the name. Yeah. Is I that how you pronounce his last name? He's uh, like my friend, but I... I, <laughs> I never met the guy, but he requested yeah. me on Facebook a little while He's back. awesome. I'm like, he is. the AAC. Yeah. yeah like, let's be friends. Gosh, he is. He's my hero. <laughs> um, but during the pandemic, he he moved here. He realized that Cascade Canyon is beautiful and, and, and started, like, you know, kind of talking to some people. But then I think other people that were locals were climbing a lot more locally, you know, once we realized we could go climbing again, you know, like the fear pandemic was right. like, don't touch anything. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, once that part was over, people were climbing more locally and, and then people were realizing that there's issues and people started hounding me about the Climbers Coalition. And I'm like, well, I haven't done anything because no one, there's no momentum. Mm-hmm. Um, Cascade was pretty still and people wanted to start doing stuff. So I'm like, all right, let's do stuff. And so once we had five, six, now I think we probably have eight or nine people that are quite active. Mm-hmm. And then we started talking to the city, talking to the BLM, mm-hmm. and building these relationships. And you realize these people from the city and the BLM were like, we didn't think climbers cared. That's the thing. Yeah. We're here, but like, yeah. if there's no voice to show that we care, they're not going to know any different. So at first you reach out, and they're almost like standoffish. Like, mm. um, but then they realize you want to help. Right. And they, I, I, it's so amazing how much that means to the city, to the BLM. Uh, even, you know, I went by the police department on Friday to, you know, talk about um, issues that we have at X-Rock with um, people that are shooting up by a boulder, leaving their dirty needles there, leaving guns there, leaving chainsaws there. And so we got to contact the police because the police can go get these items before someone gets killed right so it's it's gotten really serious on that front yeah um but we've had so we are we have access issues uh, we have parking issues we have trail issues and then we've got issues with very irresponsible um campers um with people using you know serious drugs and, and leaving needles and and we've had to do some serious cleanups with the county um the county will actually get inmates to uh um go clean it up because they have to have protocol with dirty needles and stuff. Yeah. Right. So it's, it's gotten pretty heavy on that front. Um, but I'm, I'm so happy people are involved and it's just, it, ma- it makes you learn about humanity because it's like one person, you really can't do shit and you, you got to get that momentum because, you know, we have monthly meetings and, um, but it's, it's really made me feel happy that people, you know, we've, we've been made it a concerted effort for maybe six months now. We've been having meetings and we've, We've got grants to the American Alpine Club now and the Access mm-hmm. Fund, and we're working with all these entities. And, and even, you know, like, police. Like, I spent my whole life avoiding the police at climbing areas. I feel <laughs> I feel like, and I feel like it was kind of, like, they're kind of intense, like, in Yosemite and J-Tree. Yeah. They're all up in your business. So now that we're trying to take care of areas, it, it's like, well, we actually need the police, and it is a different situation here where, there's so much going on that there's no park ranger you can you can contact right. and, and then it also makes you wonder it's kind of a rabbit hole but it's like you know does Yosemite need the level of <laughs> law enforcement or you know they'd have to they have to be all up in our business when we're responsible users and yeah. I think those situations have improved but mm-hmm. I remember one time in the early 2000s I got woken up in the middle of the night by a ranger in Camp Four he's like did you pay for this site yeah and I was like yeah and I was lying I didn't <laughs> 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 but uh, I think a lot of stuff has changed I think the facelift has changed a lot in Yosemite right, but right. bringing it back to Durango it's just we we've got some issues and um we want to show also as these mountain towns change we want to show that climbing is a viable um sustainable 
form of recreation. Mm-hmm. And, and we want to, you know, we're, we're having a climbing gym, uh, you know, a high-level climbing gym. I think Durango is going to become the center of climbing for that region. And there's yeah. so many populations that could get into climbing and, mm-hmm. and realize climbing could be something life-changing. So um, it started off trying to obtain an area, and we're still working on that to make it um, change hands to be a public area. Um, but at this point now, with with we really got to focus on trails, we got to focus on signage, and then we got to focus on, you know, keeping it safe so that some you know teenagers don't go out to s- Boulder and then step on a dirty needle. Like, yeah, it's it's pretty heavy, but that uh, that's kind of what it is now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Would you consider yourself? Do you have a title? Do you, are you the president? I'm the president. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Nice. And um, yeah, like I said, it's not like I, I was seeking that out, but I, I think I'd like to do that for a while and, and try to. Um, you know, work on all those issues and then also, you know, try to work with the climbing gym to see if we can get um, lower economic people into climbing gyms. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's an issue right now. Devin Dabney, who writes the scene, he has a podcast, American Climbing Project. He yeah, does yeah, a satirical yeah. thing. Did you listen to that? Yeah. So yeah, good. It's, it's just hilarious. like you nailed it because you can't address like satire. You're talking about art and satire. It's like he probably like addressed that in a more eloquent way than anyone could say. <laughs> it's just like, you know, you know, climbing gyms are gentrifying areas and stuff mm-hmm. like that. But um, I, I would like to to try to work with the coalition to be able to get lower economic people to um, have access to climbing and show up to the climbing gym, climb for free. It's on the Climbers yeah. Coalition. It hasn't Excellent. happened yet, but it would be a great vision to, to be able to do that. Excellent. Yeah. Love the vision. Yeah. I mean, we, we both work full time, you know, and uh, having to run an LCO on the side, mm-hmm. it takes it, it takes time, it takes dedication, yep. and um, it's 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 a good amount of work. Yeah, and so I definitely tip my hat to you again, just like spinning off this these creative pursuits because I do think that is creative. Mm-hmm. It's obviously a form of advocacy, and when those two two things can be married, I mean the sky's the limit. Yeah, it's amazing. I think really like. For me, I, you tip the hat to me, but I'm just like a wheel in it. And I feel like who really does the work are the people with the access fund in the American Alpine Club. Big time. Um, and yeah, just having Taylor in Durango, he just he just knows what to do. And, and a lot of times, advocacy is um, you got to kind of have the terminology, you got to have the access to certain people. It's almost like a world of lawyers where, mm, yeah, <laughs> or even tax stuff or whatever. Right. It's like. Um, but when you have, I think that's the the beauty of this remote working phenomenon is that rural communities that might not have the access to these people, now all of a sudden those people don't all have to live in Golden. They can yeah. live in random Durango, Colorado in the middle of nowhere. Right, right. Um, so and I know there's a lot of downfalls of remote work for mountain towns and a lot of issues. Yeah. But I think that that's like a positive spin of, yep. you know. I agree. Yeah. Well, you started to segue into it just a little bit there with uh, some of that advocacy talk so let's put a bow on this thing and ask yeah, the, my, uh, ask the owners my, of uh, the camper are returning yeah here. <laughs> they're, they're kind of lingering outside we're almost done yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um what's your definition of advocacy hmm have to think on this for a second <laughs> You know, in the last episode with uh, Felipe Proano, he's uh, this Ecuadorian gentleman who's just crushing it down there, North Face athlete. Um, you know, I, I mentioned to him, and I also wanted to mention to you, it's just like, it is kind of what you make it, and it can be in come many forms. And like I said earlier, I don't want to dilute what that 
what the word means by just casting a wide net, but um, I think this, it's this, this creative thing that you do is advocacy. And I yeah, think I think it's action is of what is right. Mm-hmm. That's why I feel so strongly um, about like some of those political things I mentioned, and, and politics is always such an area of lesser of two evils a lot of times. But I feel like you know talking about Bears Ears National Monument, it was it's right. It's you know we're living in unprecedented ecological collapse preserving this area with the you know native american component of it being their sacred homelands um this is right like i have no doubt in my mind that it's right um i have no doubt in my mind it's right to um make sure people aren't um leaving dirty needles at our boulders (laughs) um and, and there's i think once you know something is right it, it for me it makes it like imperative to create action towards doing something mm-hmm. um and it's it's what you have a you, you have to look at what i went through a lot of soul searching um in in 2016 after the election and it's like talking to people like brady of uh, who used to run the access fund yeah, and set the access fund yeah. up for a lot of success yeah. i called him like what do i do man he's like well you're a writer yeah. <laughs> I know that is actually what he said. And then I met with like one of our state senators that I have a good relationship with. And she's like, yeah, you're a writer. Right. It all came back to like, you're one, we're all one little person, but like words have power. So it's me. It's, I guess advocacy is, is, is knowing what's right. And then using what you can do because we're all small, like we're all so insignificant, but you know, I, I'm a small person. I could write something now. It might not get read for, like I always think like the next president or the next director of the secretary of the interior could be influenced by my writing as a teenager. And then they grow up. There's a guy that just went by. It looks like he has a dirtbag state of mind head on. All right. Sweet. <laughs> I don't Drop know. If does, um, yeah. It's, so it's just like, yeah, just think about what you, you have the power, the little power you have, but then also thinking that you're, you're part of this bigger thing. And it's all, it's all a movement for what is right. Mm-hmm. And I, and that's why I feel, that's why I love the access fund and, um, different groups that that advocate for you know just moving things in in the right direction and and standing up for what is good you know i feel like you know just being a child of you know like people from the midwest that are just good people is like that that was the biggest you know lesson is just like try to be a good person and try to step up for and, and speak and use your voice for what you believe is right and once you believe something's right just go all in you know with everything you can Thanks, man. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> Cheers, brother. That was episode 20 of season two. We're wrapping up season two this year. We got a couple more great episodes for you, a couple more great conversations. And then when we go back into season three in 2022, we're going to go back to some book on tape storytelling and also have some interviews. Uh, with some zine writers and other contributors to the climbing world. Music for this episode is from Devin Dabney. As we said in the conversation, Devin has a podcast called The American Climbing Project. Super interesting, super creative, and um, be sure to check that out. Our digital editor and producer is Chad Rich. And signing off. Beautiful Durango, Colorado. I'm Luke Mihal. Peace.